This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Something else. Please note this episode contains discussion around suicide and it may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story. They might have overcome adversity, they might still be on their journey with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. Today, I'm joined by an author, mother and presenter who's never held back when speaking about some of the most challenging times of her life. Dorna Porter has always had questions to ask and in the past has fronted TV documentaries investigating subjects such as childbirth, polygamy, size zero and breast cancer. Dawn has more recently been immersing herself in writing critically acclaimed books, releasing novel The Cows in 2016 and So Lucky in 2019, and last year released her first non-fiction book, Life in Pieces. Not afraid to say how it really is, Dawn talks frankly about her life in lockdown, reflecting on everything from parenting and sleep to identity and grief. With the paperback of the book releasing yesterday, I'm thrilled to be catching up with Dawn to see how those pieces of life are doing now. Welcome to the podcast, Dawn. Thank you. That was such a nice introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to start by saying welcome home because you're back from LA. Um, Is this home or is LA home? To be honest with you, whichever one I'm in feels like home and I don't ever, I've lived there for 12 years now, I don't ever seem to long for the other one when I'm in the other one, which is lovely. But after such a traumatic year and a half um, of being stuck on the other side of the world, this really, really feels like home right now. Just London feels the familiarity, the fact that you can walk around and probably bump into someone that you know is just so lovely. Just the architecture, the everything about it London in the summertime even though it hasn't stopped raining but that that vibe of people kind of being out and about so I do I feel very feel very settled after like everyone such a long time of just feeling like what the hell is happening yeah it's so interesting isn't it I guess we all found that wherever you live it is about the friendships and the sort of network that you create around you yeah, but I, I did. I did at the moment. Where I was like, "It's a really good time to be a parent." <clears throat> like, I'm, I feel so lucky that I've got kids. I I do agree with that. I think obviously there's there's days where it didn't feel that way. I would kind of fantasize about my my pre kids life and just think about how productive I would have been. You know how fit I would have been. How all of these 
things that you presume you'll do. But the reality is not many of my friends who don't have kids were actually doing that. No, Mm -hmm. you know, it was actually motivation was the hardest part of the year, wasn't it? To actually Mm. make yourself do something. It was so intense. I mean, you've talked a lot about motherhood. Is it something as a woman that was always on your radar? Um, You know, how, how did it come about that you became a parent of your two boys? Um, I don't think it was really. I wasn't one of those. I wasn't one of those girls or twenty-year-olds or even early thirty-year-olds. I met Chris on my thirtieth birthday, so it kind of that decade was quite defined by that relationship. But I definitely wasn't on a mission to find the father of my children throughout my twenties. I was very presumed, always presumed, that I would be the single one in my forties. And if I, if I wanted to, I would find a way to have a baby and that would be like some exciting journey that I went on. I, that's Or I would just have lots of cats. That's how I saw my future. I just wasn't broody at all. And then uh, married Chris when I was 34. And I just remember waking up when I turned 35, it was like my uterus was just like, fill me. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was this new um, feeling that I just could not could not ignore really Mm. really wanted to have a baby and um yeah and I just I just I really just followed my followed my gut on that and I do wonder if I hadn't have met Chris if I ever would have had that feeling because I really feel like I wanted him to be I saw us as a family and that whole picture suddenly made it you know what I wanted I think one of the hardest demographics for this lockdown was so many of my friends who were like you know 39 turning 40 who thought this was the year that they were going to meet someone and have a baby and they just feel that they've been robbed of of that time and um and I really feel for them because it's just an incredibly hard situation to be in so um you know you can never guess what your life would have been like but I do think like meeting Chris was like a sliding door situation and if I hadn't have met him I I wonder what that other life would have been like and I think it probably would have been single with lots of cats yeah. Oh God. It's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Cause you can romanticize it and look at it all with rose tinted spectacles. Mm. Cause I, I know I spent a lot of time reflecting like that and thinking of those things. Um, and I think also in my relationship, our roles changed because I used to always be out on the road, always working. And actually I became a lot more hands-on with the kids, a lot more domestic. I mean, it's, it's slowly going back again in the other yeah. way. Um, what about you and Chris? Do you pay, do you play different roles? Do you have different approaches to parenting or? Chris is quite a lot more organized than I am. So he would do a schedule. So you, I've got the kids till 11 and you've got them till two and do that. Um, which worked really well because that's, I mean, to be honest with you, that's the only reason I got to write that book is because when I would get like four hours off the kids every day, because he would take them. We're quite, we're quite traditional in our roles, despite being quite a feminist family like I do most of the I do all of the cooking because it is Mm -hmm. literally one of my favorite things to do um and I really enjoy that role when Chris does like the putting up shelves and all the tech stuff so we're quite like man woman in that way in terms of childcare, we that's something that we just split and we just both do um I'm a bit more chaotic, quite like mm. the chaos. I'm like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thrive off the chaos, I do. Kind of. Yeah. I feel like I feel like organisation is nice when it's working, but it's the, the, the stress of having to maintain it isn't what my personality is, is good with. So almost too much organisation just stresses me out because I'm so scared of failing <laughs> and ruining it. Um, so what about your own childhood? You know, it's interesting there hearing about you know, how you and Chris parent, what was your own childhood like? Oh gosh, that's a large question. My own childhood. Well, 
I was born in Scotland. Let's start at the start. And um, when I was around one, my parents got divorced and my mum moved with my sister and I down to Guernsey, where her family was. And we lived with our grandparents, which was, I mean, I, I remember, obviously I was only, only lived there till I was um, quite young, but it was probably strange that we lived with our grandparents and our mum. That wasn't kind of a usual situation for it wasn't so I can't remember any of my other friends living in that situation my dad I didn't see him very much we'd go up to Scotland for the odd holiday but always adored him always adored him and loved him I've always gotten very well with him um and then when I my mum was very ill she had breast cancer which I wasn't hugely aware of she used to go to the UK and send postcards from castles like she was just on holiday but actually she was in um Southampton hospital getting treatment and I have odd memories like I remember one time being in the kitchen with her I must have been really young probably about six and um she would just be crying her eyes out and then I remember one time she said I'll come to the garden and I'll read read your story and we laid on the sun lounger and she read me Jack and the Beanstalk and I just remember it's so odd because you remember so little from that age you just have these kind Mm. of flashes but that one stuck with me and I think it stuck with me because years later I realized that was probably when she just found out that her cancer wasn't going to go away Um, and she died a couple of days before my seventh birthday and I remember that time as just a really that's all a real blur I remember the night I was told when my aunt and uncle told us and I just thought my uncle was joking and I told him to stop being so silly and this kind of denial that I think remained with me for a very long time um And then when I was around 10, my grandparents were getting very old. And so my aunt and uncle, my mum's brother and his wife took us in, me and my sister. And so they became our parents, really. And we lived Mm. with them from the age of 10. My dad, still up in Scotland, had three parents who we'd go and visit. And and so we moved in with them. And, you know, they were older. They'd already had their kids who had um, left home. And suddenly they've got these two traumatised young girls living with them. So... I don't want to underestimate how hard that was for them. There were definitely some really difficult times where everyone realised how fucking awful this was. And mm. there were also some really amazing times with huge, you know, Sunday roasts with all friends coming over in this kind of environment that wasn't really what my grandparents' house was like. And so it did, it did loads of wonderful things for me and my sister, but I definitely remember feeling like... I knew I was different from the other kids. I knew I was living in somebody else's house and that my behaviour mattered and um, that everything was slightly, nothing was ever for sure, which mm. isn't my isn't my aunt and uncle's fault, but that's, of course, when you go and live with, in somebody else's house when you're 10, you just, you, you're aware that you've been moved because either somebody else couldn't cope or because it wasn't working out. And there's always a sense of, I'm different. And I always yeah. knew I was different. Which I quite liked and I quite used to my advantage and knew that there's a book, um, Orange, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. And one of the one of the lines on the first page was, there was never a time that I didn't know that I was special. Mm-hmm. And that that book resonated with me when I was a kid, not special in wonderful terms. I mean, special as in, I know that I'm different and I know that that's either something that can be a negative or a positive in my life. And I... I remember quite early on, quite, in, yeah, just quite enjoying the fact that I was different. But look, I'm an exhibitionist by nature. I, you know, wanted to be on the stage, jazz hands and name and lights. So as this kind of young girl on Guernsey, like I describe myself as a young Moana staring on the beach. Like, what is beyond <laughs> the roof? And then um, just kind of desperate to get to the mainland and start living my life. 
It's amazing because I feel like not many people would know this about about you um, and the way you're able to talk about it. Um, you just seem like such a resilient person. I think, you know, one of the things in, in all of your writing is you're always very honest. You know, in, in your <clears> book, um, Life in Pieces, you talk about losing your friend, um, Caroline Flack, which obviously mm. happened at the start of lockdown. None of us knew we were going to go into lockdown and you went into it with that grief. I think, you know, when we get to our age, I'm 37, um, we do lose grandparents and that's really sad. And, and I think we're able to cope, but I don't think at this age we expect to start losing friends. No. And I, I don't know if you'd agree. Does that feel like a, a different type of grief? Oh, I mean, it's, you know, when I talk about grief in terms of my mum, I was so young. I didn't, it's not grief. It was something was snatched away from you and you're left with this like hole that you don't know how to fill. And it's, it's a, it's an eerie kind of feeling, but I didn't, I don't grieve my mum because honestly, and it's awful. I don't remember her very well. So there's no, it's not that kind of loss. When Caroline died, I mean, I can say like, you know, as a, as an adult, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me um I was just the shock of it was so hideous I mean I loved Caroline she thrilled me as a human like I found her the funniest person in the world she was the most loyal friend to me I would like she when I knew she was coming into a room I would my heart would start racing I would tingle I was so excited to see her every time I saw her and we just had an absolute ball she was I can't even say believe I'm saying was. Um, she, her energy is still everywhere as far as I'm concerned. When she died, it was like someone just pulled the plug on one of the most things that made me happiest. It was just the saddest thing, the shock. Obviously, when someone dies of suicide, you're left with a lot of, could I have done more? Should mm. I have said something? And over time, you realise that, no, that's you, that's not the case when someone's, in that state there's nothing that you can do or maybe there is but there was nothing that I could have done from the other side of the world um so that grief is something people have always talked to me like I understand grief when people you know friends mothers have died they've kind of come to me as if I can help them I'm like guys what you're going through as a 20 plus year old losing a parent is I've, I don't know that feeling I was a child I was like it was buried I don't that's not how I feel so Caroline was my first um, actually, that's not fair. We've lost family members on Chris's side, and that that was there. But Caroline was the closest person to me that's died as a as an adult. I think I look back and I go, did I did I cope well? How did I deal with that? I don't know. I don't know what coping well is. I mean, it's very weird because there were six weeks of absolute hell while I was in LA after I received the news before the funeral. Um, I can only describe that as that I was just wading through mud. I just, I was just wading through mud. I was How did you find out? Um, my friend Josie called me. I will always be grateful um, for the way that I found out because the eight-hour time difference means that I could have just woken up and seen it on Twitter. Right. And But by some stroke of luck, I woke up, I had a text from my friend Josie saying I needed to call her and I knew it was something. I, I, my heart sunk. I was like, this isn't going to be good. And um, I called her and... I had just about enough time. I remember sitting, I was in the bedroom, Chris was with the kids and they were all laughing. They had such a good morning. I just sent Chris a text and I said, can you just put the kids in front of the TV and just come in here? I've just had a really bad call. 
and I, I mean, I, I feel like I've roared and then I just started yeah. roaring. Um, and then I had just about enough time to call two friends who I really wanted to hear it before three friends actually before it broke on Twitter and as I was calling them it it couldn't believe it it was so weird I felt like only only a few of us knew but people started to say it on Twitter so quickly it was so terrifying how that machine kicks in um and were you aware of her mental health because you know we've seen lots of different people losing people through suicide this year and many of us have been totally unaware of where they were at in their lives with their mental health but uh, I knew she was in a bad way but I didn't know it was that bad mm. I wasn't expecting that call um we'd been in touch that week and I knew things were bad but I I wasn't there I was you know I was in LA and she was in London so I was she, you know, I wasn't getting those details from her on text. Mm. Um, but I knew she I was checking in with her all the time. So I knew she was, I knew she was going through something absolutely horrific, but I didn't, I didn't think it was going to come to that. I had a whole plan for her. I was like, you this is what you're going to do. You're going to be fine. You're going to do this work on yourself. You're going to get the help you need. You're going to, um, you're going to feel the support and the love of the people around you. And you're going to just, you know, sit back for a, a while until you feel stronger and then you're going to you're going to get through this and everything's going to be fine because weirdly and this is the thing about mental health is that um these are incredibly resilient people mm-hmm. who feel this way mm. and this understanding where I think telling Caroline's story and what her mum and sister really wanted to do with the documentary that they made is just make sure that people understand that people can be more than one thing and that she was all of the brilliant stuff that I described earlier is absolutely who Caroline was. None of that was an act and her hiding this other thing, but sometimes this other side to her, the voices became louder. And um, and it's very difficult to, like, get into that side of somebody. It's not something they're proud of and they want to share. And this is why the conversation around mental health is so important, to try and give people who feel that way the, the confidence and the security to be able to admit to those feelings because part of it I'm sure is the fact that you just feel so desperately alone and ashamed for having mm-hmm. those thoughts um and actually you know as somebody who is close to you or close to her she'd have opened up about that I mean I'm, there were people I'm sure that you know were more aware who were closer to her they did know about it but um if someone speaks to you that um, tells you that they're feeling that, that way the level of support you're going to get if you open up and admit it is huge, but um, yeah. Anyway, I think that's just why the conversation is so so important. I do, and you know, this thing for like the people listening to this podcast, I'm sure that have felt that way or feel that way very often. Feel alone, mm. and when when you've lost someone in that way, you just want to say to them, God, the last thing you are is alone. Like you are so not alone. We're here for you, but trying to build that confidence to be able to say those things out loud must be so hard. So back to your original question. Anyway, what was um, lockdown like? So I, we went to the funeral. We all gave each other coronavirus at the funeral. So we had that right at the start, which was terrible. Anyway, I was on one of the last flights back, heading back to LA after um, when they were saying everything was shutting down. Trump had just announced the borders were closing the next day. Very, very surreal. Very, very surreal experience being on the airplane that day. But I, I got home and I just remember thinking... Um, I don't want to go out. I don't, I can't see people. My world has just come to an absolute grinding halt. That's the only way I could describe it. I don't know how to continue without Caroline. And um, I need the world to stop turning. And then look what happened. So in one way, that first, I'd say six months of lockdown, I was 
really grateful for it because I mm. couldn't imagine how I could have, I needed that time. Um, I wasn't able to go and live my normal life and be normal and happy. It was an amazing thing to be able to have that time to just grieve, but also basically be Mary Poppins at the same time and have to look yeah. after the kids. So, <laughs> no, the, the kind of contrast in the two personalities that I was living was, I mean, it was, which is why the book, I, I had to write the book because I was, I have to keep this daily diary of this kind of up and down um, one minute I am literally hiding in a cupboard. I have this. I had this wardrobe that I could walk into and I used to sit on the little red stool in there and just sob so my kids didn't see me. Mm. And then the next minute I'm, you know, trying to bake a cake, which I'm awful at, or make, making something out of Play-Doh. I'm like, what is that? This is the weirdest experience. Yeah. But somehow manage, managing to do all of that over the course of a day. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You did something really beautiful in March um, and I wondered if it was because of everything you were going through with your grieving. You know, we all were talking about being kind um, and you have a charity, Choose Love, and Mm -hmm. you you quit Twitter and you donated your Twitter to the charity so that they could use that platform for good. Yeah. And, you know, there's some obvious reasons why you would do that. It's an amazing thing to do for a charity. It's a great database for a charity. But I felt like there was some real sort of, maybe you'd gone on this journey of what mattered and what didn't and what negativity you did and didn't want in your life. Talk to me a bit about that because I felt quite overwhelmed by it. I thought it was a pretty cool thing to do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I, um, not to get into the details of talking about Caroline, but the um, I definitely feel like Twitter suddenly felt like a very toxic place. You know, it was very, had a lot to say about her. And then after she died, it became a very sympathetic place. And I was like, you know what? I don't really trust this. Um, I'm also, I've always had a really good um, relationship with social media I do have to say you know the old troll but nothing nothing terrible at all I feel very lucky but I did just suddenly look at it and like what approval am I looking for from everybody why does it make me feel so awful when out of you know all of those hundreds of thousands of people one person says something mean and they're the person that I go to bed thinking about that night when they've got like five followers and I who even are they it's probably a fake name and I just suddenly looked at the whole thing it's like god this is a weird position that we're putting ourselves in And also I just, I couldn't keep reading sympathy at that time because I don't know if I believed that it was real immediately afterwards. I do believe it's real now. And I think people had a real shock and that all of that is very real. But at the time I was like too much too soon type feeling. Um, And so I just quit Twitter. So I I thought, right, I'm going to take a break. And then I thought, choose love means the absolute world to me. And it meant a lot to Caroline. Josie, who runs 
choose love is um like was minor caroline's is minor caroline's best friend and um i just thought how could i rather than just shut it down and just waste that thing i'm just gonna give it to them and it was just immediately i was sitting on the sofa with josie when i was back for the funeral and i just said right sign me out change my password i don't want anything to do with it just do it she was like are you sure you sure you sure and i was like yes just do it and as soon as i did it i was like I built that following for a really good thing and it's just gone to a mm-hmm. brilliant cause. I would recommend to anybody actually who's got a good, a big following on Twitter who is just not feeling like it's their place anymore. Don't just shut it down and waste it. Give it to someone who, um, you know, could use it. Like give it to a give it to a charity or give it to, if there's a new author who's got like five followers whose book you really loved, give it to them. Like just, you know, share the, share the kind of the audience because um, I think it's just a really lovely, fun thing to do or, um, or sell it in an auction. I'm sat here now thinking I should donate mine. You're inspiring me to yeah. kind of sh- shed the layers. So we, we should good. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. It has become really toxic and it's, it's just not needed in life. Um, we should talk about Choose Love, though, because it's an amazing charity. It was formerly mm. known as Help Refugees and it was 2015 that you set it up. Is that right? Yeah, it would have been, yeah. So how did it come about and how did you first start fundraising? Because that's a big thing to take on and... I mean, we didn't know it was going to be this. So um, I had just had my first baby and I was over from LA sitting, having lunch with Josie, who I was talking about before. And um, we just saying, why isn't like, why aren't more people talking about what's happening in Calais? Why aren't people helping? Like this is, it's awful. And so over the course of this like boozy Sunday lunch, we just decided that we would do something. So um, our friend Liana was, uh, Liana Bird was quite knowledgeable about it all. So the three of us got together and thought, right, let's aim. I think this was in probably around August. Let's aim at the end of September to send a lorry load of supplies to Calais. And that was it. That was all we were going to do. Didn't have a lorry. Didn't know how we were going to do this. Didn't have any any details on anything. And just through my Twitter feed started to appeal for donations. And we set up, I think it was Liana who had the brilliant idea of doing an Amazon wish list where you um, you say what's needed. And so people just order it and they don't have to do anything more than just pay That's for it. And it idea. all comes to us. Yeah. So easy. Anyway, we got like 7,000 packages delivered over the course of 24 hours. We're completely inundated. We didn't have any infrastructure, didn't know what we were doing. Then we started like, right, um, I'll give them a shout out, Big Yellow Storage, can you help us out? Um, They gave us a floor, basically, at one of their storage units. And we just filled it immediately. Then we started appealing for volunteers from Instagram to come and help and Twitter to come and help because um, I remember um, like quite a few celebrities turned up to help, which was amazing. Suddenly we were like, okay, this is huge, way more than a lorry. How the hell are we going to get this all to, to Calais? And so suddenly then we then had to like, ask companies to lend us lorries with drivers mm-hmm. and we're like oh my god what have we done this is terrifying it very quickly came we came to realize that people really wanted to do something but didn't know how and we had mm-hmm. offered this um this option of how to help and we managed to get that stuff to calais um in the end a supermarket lend us a fleet of lorries to deliver stuff around europe as well does restore your faith in society doesn't it oh how it was good? Ab- it really did it was a really amazing time and um very quickly we came, I, like I said, I just had a baby and um, I'd also just launched my own business, a clothing brand, and I was about to move back to California. So we had this kind of crisis talk where I remember standing in the lobby of some, I think it was a big lawyer's office because we were like, we really need like advice and help. And Josie and Liana and I standing there go, what do we do? Is this the end of the journey or are we carrying on? And I said, I'm always here as um, 
you know, to, to help, to help in any way I can, but I can't take on the actual logistical running of a charity. And Josie at the time was an assistant for Coldplay. And she said, well, I will. And she quit her job in the glamorous rock world and became the head of this. And Leanna did it too. And they just, they just built a team. They're the main source of aid for the refugee crisis across the world. I'm not going to take any credit for the day-to-day running of that charity, but um, I do everything I can in terms of fundraising. And um, I'm just, you know, shamelessly the person who has to kind of ask Harry Styles to be in our Christmas promo video and stuff like that, <laughs> which is which is fun, but it's also excruciating. It's cr- you know, it's you must, right? Oh, yeah. You must get you must you must be on both sides. Get asked to do stuff all the time and yeah. have to ask people to do stuff. And and I wish people understood when they see because there's people can be really shitty about yeah. celebrities promoting charities. And here I'm here to say this right now: the amount of money that it raises when someone is willing to put their name to it yeah. is so huge. So don't be pissed off with celebrities um, support charities as someone who has a charity we rely on it we beg yeah. for it when someone is willing to do it because they get asked to do so much stuff it means the absolute world like the thank you letters that we send are like drooling with with thanks yeah. because we're so grateful when you see that a celebrity has popped up and said support choose love like don't give them a hard time. Like, please just say thank you because from those videos that we put together and from those, when we get someone to Instagram or tweet about Choose Love, we literally raise thousands of pounds mm. for refugees off the back of those. It's, and it's a no overhead way of fundraising, which is And yeah, otherwise we thing. have to pay yeah. for uh, yeah. advertising or get funding to, mm-hmm. to pay for PR or whatever. And it's like, please, if you've ever thought, oh God, another celebrity promoting some charity for them, um, you know, for their own personal PR, it's really really not people like me have begged them and begged them and begged them and they very kindly agreed to do it so can we go from celebrities charities and refugees to weed gummies and alcohol yes, yes please because <laughs> um, that was a great link yeah because <laughs> you, you talk so in life in pieces like I said it's, it's really open it's really honest and that was one of the things you talked about in lockdown weed yeah. gummies and alcohol and I never know when when you research people and read stuff you're like is that true is that not true because obviously things get twisted in headlines yeah talk to me about it well so let me first talk about weed gummies because just to like bowl over the controversy here um weed is legal in California so firstly okay. there's there's shops that are like apple stores where you go in and buy whatever you want so if anyone thinks that I'm breaking the law in any way I'm not I haven't ever taken a weed gummy in England because it's illegal here and I wouldn't know where to get them. So let's just clear that up first. Um, But in terms of LA, I'm not massively into weed. I never smoked weed when I was at college, didn't do anything for me. It just made me pass out and hated the smell of it. But in um, but since it's become legal, there's all these kind of fancy ways that you can take it, either in a little mint or a gummy. And it's a really, really low dose. For me, it's like 2.5 milligrams, I think it is. And if I was to compare it to, it's probably would give you the equivalent buzz of a glass of wine. Like I would mm. have one of those. I'm not walking around my kids stoned out my face. It's just, and I actually That's the headline. <laughs> I know. And I really, really, really wasn't, wasn't, I was quite drunk, but wasn't stoned. Um, I don't, I mean, I haven't had a weed gummy in probably about 10 months, but in that period of time after Caroline died, when lockdown kicked in, they just took the edge off me feeling like, absolute shit if I'm honest with you and I really believe in the medicinal qualities of marijuana and that it will be you know something that is just so um accepted and normal very soon very soon all over the world because when you're talking about it in tiny doses like that um 
it just took the edge off. It just took the edge off. And so I, I had one most days in lockdown. And then in terms of booze, um, I would definitely say that I did definitely drink a lot in that first six months of Same. lockdown, partly because lockdown was so boring and it was fun. So if like at three o'clock in the afternoon, Chris and I were like, oh, bugger it, should we just have a margarita? I mean, and it made it made those days that were exhausting and long and often quite sad and hard just fun I don't know about you I actually put on 16 pounds over the course of lockdown yeah. and um that was from because I really turned to cooking and food as well because mm-hmm. that was really like and also the fact that when I was cooking I didn't have to be looking after the kids so I was like I'm gonna cook another really indulgent meal and um got to around February of 2021 when we were actually in Toronto and was like okay 16 pounds heavier than I was this time last year so then I really got on it and got really fit quit drinking started eating really healthily and um and got fit again so it kind of came out of lockdown as I went in which was quite good but there's this whole like you know yeah. 12 13 months in the middle that were just this huge <laughs> indulgent like god just stuffing my face which was great I did the same. So we drank loads. We day drank. We had the heat wave here. We were in the garden barbecuing. And then I would eat all the beige foods hungover. I put on these two stone. Did you? Yeah. And then life came back and all my clothes of zips wouldn't zip up. So I was just nothing footage. Yeah. I was on Zoom with like all the zips undone because obviously no one could see. (laughs) Um, Then real life in person returns. I was like, okay, I got to get fit. Did the same as you. Got fit. Got into like more running, more cycling. And then another lockdown came in the winter and I put it all back on again. So I was like, yeah easily it's been done so long yeah so now I'm back on I've got I've got a green juice today I'm back on the health kick oh very um, good I'm just trying now I'm just trying now to be because we just got back to London I'm so happy to see everyone we're going out for more dinners and stuff I'm um I think it would be you know hard for me to put on another 16 pounds but I'm so much now I'm so relaxed about it um and I'm just really but I'm enjoying being healthy I'm enjoying exercise for the first time ever also I'm 42 just can't do that anymore I used to not I used to if I have an indulgent weekend now, I feel it in my body all week. When that it never used to happen, you've just yeah, you just gotta yeah. you have to slightly change the way that you consume when you after you've turned forty. I was quite shocked by that. Oh look, my little pussy cat in the background there. <laughs> now we must talk about um, the books out in paperback. Yes, and obviously your previous books have been novels, and this is more of a memoir. Why did you decide to do that? Can I be totally honest? Mm. Because our industry shut down and I needed the money in lockdown. And mm-hmm. um, I was writing this blog every day. I have a subscription blog. Another thing that I did after, um, around the time that Caroline died, I just wanted to prep, protect myself online a bit. So I started a blog, but rather than just throw it out there into the ether of the internet, I charge $4 a month for my blog, which mm-hmm. means that the only people that are there that are there want to read my work. And um, I used to feel quite weird about that. But then I was like, hang on a minute, this is my job. Why do writers write for free all the time? It's absolutely stupid so um it's a very kind of lovely protected space where I was writing my daily diary and I was a lot more open than I'd ever have been if I was doing Instagram updates or writing a you know public blog I was like is there a way that we can do this book but I will edit out a lot of the really really personal stuff about the kids Mm. and um and just make it more about me and my life and add essays and all that kind of stuff and they were happy with that so I was like right where do I sign and um and suddenly I was writing essentially a memoir which Mm. I never thought I would write and if I did then I was going to be you know 70 writing something like this and I was nervous about it because it was personal but also this feeling that we were all the whole world was going through something very dramatic we were all stuck at home with our families we were all having to just the, the sharing just became quite therapeutic so um 
if it hadn't been for lockdown, obviously it's a book about lockdown, but there's lots of essays from my life. Um, I don't think I would have write, written a book of essays if it hadn't have been mm. for being served that kind of bizarre situation. But I'm so glad I did now. It's actually really I was going nice. to say, we're yeah. so lucky that you did. Yeah, because oh, it's, thanks. it's I, I think, this. Yeah, it felt really good to open up. And, you know, post kids, I'm a lot more less cagey about kids now that they're older. I was mm. very cagey when they were babies. I didn't want anyone talking about them at all. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, but now it's like there's no secret that I have kids, so it felt like I didn't expose too much about them. I'm, they're not on Instagram. It's like we haven't done any of that stuff. Mm. It just felt quite nice to write about family life. Um, so does that mean yeah. the next book you'll continue to do this, or would the next book go back to a novel? I'm about to sit down and start writing a novel. Uh-huh. I think I think nonfiction is something that it will depend what's going on in the world. I don't feel like I've got anything to say right now you know who knows what the future brings and what experiences I'll go through and that maybe I feel like that needs to go down on paper also stuff like I write for a living now I don't do any tv I'm full-time writer and you you know you get handed grief like that or you get handed lockdown and of course that's going to end up being what you write about it's like you can't walk away from material when it when it is presented to you in that way um but at the moment literally have no life material at all (laughs) I'll just write a whole book about my cats Got nothing well, I, to say. I buy that it's fine <laughs> that's an idea mad cat woman um, but you know like I said it's not it would just depend on on life but I can't wait to write fiction again I there's when you write fiction you can put in so much about yourself but hide it mm-hmm. and um and I love that like there's a little piece of me in all my characters but none of them you know in the last two that I've written for sure just I'm not writing about myself which is great mm-hmm. but you always use yourself as inspiration I think when you write fiction Well, whatever you continue to write, please carry on being so honest and open because you help so many people, including myself. Oh, Um, thank you, darling. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons I really admire you and I suppose almost envy you because I think the way you speak, it's you don't care what people think of you, you know, and you talked about leaving Twitter because it was toxic. You know, you don't seem to write um, and and have a headline in mind or, or worry. And I think that's a really amazing place to get to your life where you're not appeasing other people and you're being authentic and being yourself. And I think a lot of us, that's our that's our journey. Some of us want to get to that point. So mm-hmm. it must be quite freeing. It is lovely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Just not worrying about it. I also think back in the day when I wanted a TV career, you're so you're so aware that everything could kind of get you to that. Once I stopped wanting to be on TV, like the world just kind of opened up. It was a lot freer Mm. um, because I wasn't trying to get employed. I'm not trying to get employed anymore, which is a huge relief. As long as I keep writing, I'll always have work. But when I'm trying to get a job, I think your output changes a bit. I also say like, I um, from because my mum died so young, you live a certain kind of life when you never have to worry what your mother would say. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that was what I lived like as a kid and now as a grown-up. You live a certain kind of life when you're not trying to impress employers. But that doesn't mean to say I say things that I don't I don't say things that I don't regret. Like sometimes I'll go to bed and I'll just be like I'll wake up in the morning like, why did I why was I on Instagram drunk? Why was I? Yeah. Why was I I've been that? there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Delete. <laughs> why did I say that? Um, that happens a lot. Uh, well thank you so much for today as expected you've been extraordinary um, and it's been an amazing chat that I'm sure a lot of people are going to relate to and it's going to help a lot of other people so thank you thank you Katie thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People if you haven't already please follow where you get your podcasts also if you enjoyed this please help us spread the word rate and review the show or share on your socials